0: What's up? Kellogg Report. I'm Josh Stack. Welcome to another episode of my podcast. Today we're chatting with a good friend of mine, John Lucas. John is a seasoned and experienced political operative based in North Carolina. He's also an attorney, a lot of experience in con law. He's worked on quite a few campaigns statewide and otherwise in North Carolina Um, and as somebody that I rely on to get a lay of the land who I can who's a political junkie like I am so you know I think he's going to be a a regular contributor to the podcast as well so because we've got so many crazy political stories happening um, you know that that go beyond the the dynamics of the, the revolutionary movements of things like Black Lives Matter and the racism of Donald Trump but you know, there's Senate and House races. There are the machinations therein. Who's got the money? Who doesn't? What are the obstacles? Is Trump going to be an albatross or is he going to help them? It's just stuff like that. So I think this is for for those of you that are political junkies, tune in. Um, We tried to suss out a lot of the issues that that don't get a lot of attention or that just, you know, go into more detail about things that, that people are talking about on, on the news. Um, it's a way to listen to it instead of read it. And hopefully we are trusted sources um, <laughs> for what that's worth. Also for you music folks, John is a, is a big music guy. He is a rare bird in that um, he's a professional political operative and also a big widespread panic fan. But you find that a lot in the South. So, um, nonetheless, here we go. Tune in, turn on, give to your favorite charity, and uh, be good people out there. Thanks for listening. What's happening, dude?
1: What's going on, Mr. Stack?
0: Oh, you know, another day, another podcast. You got plenty of news News. to talk about. Yeah, so let's just jump right in. Um, we've seen the president withstand a lot of uh, body blows in three and a half years, in large part because of his the fealty that the congressional Republicans give to him and the cultish base. But you know, we've got now a a scandal that I think has some legs. And I think it implicates more than just him Um, You know, if Russia is paying bounties to the Taliban to target American troops in Afghanistan, and we now have bank intercepts that's part of this whole thing from last year, then who knew? And if the Republicans knew about this during the impeachment hearings and were just beside themselves with their pearl clutching, I mean, do you think as a as a seasoned political operative you know what what are the chances that this has to really um, negatively impact trump and or any of his enablers?
1: Well, I think the timing of it um probably is going to have minimal impact other than just uh you know a a news narrative that will probably probably switch to something else here shortly i mean we're, you know, what, three, four months out from an election. And I think if this were two years ago, or right after the midterms, but, you know, still a ways out from this election, you may, it may have more of an impact with congressional Republicans, as it would, they would have more room to, you know, be more vocal about what in the world is going on here. And this is insane. And and the way you're handling is insane. Um, But many of them, at least at this juncture are gonna live and die by um, how the president performs on the November ballot. And so again, like everything else in Washington, DC um, of late, when, and our, the politics of these guys are determined by their self-interest. And if they think that standing up you know, on their principles that God, we've got Russia who has been essentially catered to by this administration, putting a bounty on American soldiers but that would keep them from getting reelected. You're not going to hear him speak out about it other than some saber rattling, but of no serious consequence. That's my point.
0: So you don't think that even something like this, that has targets on American troops backs that was ignored by the president, you know, it, it, at very, his very, the very best thing he can say was that he found out about it last Friday. So it's Tuesday now. And he went golfing for two days. And that's if he ignored the the PDB and whatever briefings he got. And the first he heard of it was on Friday, and he went golfing. And that he invited Putin into the G7, pulled troops from Germany, which benefits Putin, and uh, had multiple phone calls with him and correspondences. All of that will will fall off of him, and none of these guys, you really think that that's not going to have any adverse impact on any of these dudes?
1: Well, I, I mean, I, one would hope it would. But, I, you know, if you look at the track record of this administration, I mean, just this singular story would be devastating to a normal presidential administration in the United States. But this is just one story. And granted, it's it's a bad one. It's, it's unconscionable to think that our our government has functioned this way. But it's just this is one in a long list of things. That many of which I would say rise to this level, maybe not to the point of putting targets on the back of U.S. troops, to use your words, but but certainly majorly unconscionable things. Um, and yet they roll right off of him, you know. Uh, so, I, and again, I just think you know pragmatically and just being coldly politically calculated. And forgetting what the issue is, because, again, I just that's how these guys unfortunately think a lot um, at the highest levels of politics is, is by ensuring that they're there, you know, to make the same mistakes again the next term. Um, that that I just think if, if they go too hard against the president, then it could hurt them personally to get reelected. Now, I think you'll see Republicans in solidly safe congressional districts or United States senators that are not on the ballot this cycle speaking up because they can um, and I think I would hope that any Republican or Democrat for that matter would be appalled by this and would want to get to the bottom of it regardless of the politics of it um, but I I just think that you know the, the one thing I would say is if you start to see the tide turning and and you know we get to a larger, Conversation about Trump's reelection and his approval ratings and polls and stuff, as that, as his approval rating continues to drop, and as closer as we get to the election, if it becomes apparent that supporting the president in these behaviors becomes a liability to the Republicans, then I think you'll see them jump all over him and, and, and do exactly what, what you're saying. However, That is, again, a decision that is made based on their personal interest that no longer is it advantageous to support this president than it is to go against him. And right now, given the time that we still are out from the election, despite Trump's faltering numbers, you know, many Republicans that that I speak to say, look at his poll numbers against Hillary last time. I mean, and and, and they're right in that sense that I don't think anyone thought he was going to win, um, including Trump. And that's evidenced by his transition team after the election. But, uh, you know, so as, as time shrinks down, if the gap remains as big as it is, I think you'll see more of it. But right now, I think, in fairness to the um, the senators and representatives, they don't have any information. You know, and again, that's that's a huge well, uh, faltering on the part of the administration as well. But once they get the information, I think they'll be able to you know, make a more solid argument about where they are. Well,
0: let's get back to what you were saying about the polling numbers. I mean, you know, you've got his mishandling of the coronavirus, blatant mishandling of that. You've got the foreign policy gaffes, you've got Russiagate now, you've got the white power tweet. So he's basically saying, yep, I'm a racist. And,
1: and that's this week, right? Yeah,
0: and I'm and I'm saying that yes, I'm I'm telling you that I'm a racist, and that's what I want to excite, use to excite my base. He attacked um, peaceful protesters with tear gas, so he could get a picture taken. You know, it's been one abomination after another, and you know, like you said, none of it has stuck. All these guys are going to sink or swim with him. What is it? You know, when you talk polling numbers. Do you think Mitch and those guys are watching the the how he's doing within the party you know, say if he starts falling I think he was at eighty six percent or something like that within the party um about a month or so ago where is that where is that threshold where they start seeing him as an albatross
1: well i I think that's a very complicated question. And it, it you know, it it's hard to look at it with a broad brush stroke like that, because what what his support in demographics in Florida or North Carolina, for that matter, versus what they are in Oklahoma are, are very different. And so the people that are supporting the age groups, the race, you know, all of those things, race Republicans versus Democrats, I think across the board, you're absolutely seeing an erosion of his support within his own party. And I think that's where you're getting the white power, you know, tweets and and things like that is him trying to galvanize that base. But any uh, political operative can tell you that, you know, Democrat, uh, just a stable kind of datum of, of politics is Democrats, for the most part, are going to vote for Democrats, Republicans are going to vote for Republicans, and the middle or who gets elected is decided by that 8 or 9% that swing. And so it's not enough to just galvanize your base unless you can expand the numbers of your base and, and turn them out, to, you know, overperform what the numbers are. But I, he, he's shrinking his, he's eviscerating his coalition and shrinking his core supporters down. I mean, he's, he's losing white voters and older white voters particularly and women for that matter, just at at huge numbers. And that is absolutely what propelled him to victory in 2016. And so you're seeing a lot of Republicans get very weary about that. But the biggest thing is, and and it's just, to me, it's like he's written them off, is the independent, unaffiliated, you know, and persuadable voters that that sit in the middle and that, that are going to decide this election in key states such as Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Florida, you know, all of those. And that's what he's got to focus on if he wants wants to win.
0: Right. So you mentioned coalition and base and the expansion or detraction of that. And I think that would be something worthy of touching on and expanding on right now. Um, okay. Just because a lot of folks don't really. That's not a, a concept that, um, you know, the lay person really gets into. So. I don't think he's expanded his base. I don't think he's worked to build a coalition. You know, he got elected a lot on, you know, if you look at his demographics, like you just said, that was his coalition. Or I guess, how would you define his his coalition of demographics that that put him in office?
1: Um, I would say that he... He assumed the mantle of the modern day, you know, GOP coalition and, and party. And, and that historically are uh, predominantly white voters and uh, the um, like strong business types, but like small businesses, but also big businesses, you know, that that whole coalition. Um, and then uh, elderly voters and elderly voters vote. You know, they turn mm-hmm. out you can count on them. Um, But he's seeing particular erosion of support with them, um, you know, with the handling of the COVID stuff. But that would be his um, uh, traditional coalition. And and when you hear all of this law and order talk coming from him, that's what that is. That's him trying to appeal to, you know, the soccer moms in the suburbs of of Pennsylvania, right? I mean, that's, that's what they want to hear when you hear defund the police versus law and order. If you're a soccer mom, I mean, that that's, they're, they're going to trend that way. So that is his attempt. That's just one example of, of trying to, um, you know, preserve his coalition. But the problem is, you know, it's like the handling of the COVID and, um, and just his other, just in the, the incendiary tweets, that white power is, is a good example of that. People don't like that, you know, and uh, just ac- across the board. And you know, maybe some of his rabid base does. But again, I'm, I'm talking more about these, um, the, the larger part of his coalition and the, the persuadable voters there that he has to win. And um, that's I mean, that's just what we're seeing with his behavior. So I, I, I think he's eroding his coalition um, and firing up his base like the the core part of his base but not not in such numbers that it will require for him to win re-election at this juncture
0: at this juncture is key and you touched on something also that i think is is somewhat prescient that republicans will vote for republicans democrats will vote for democrats and that to me just it's a it's a bummer because it doesn't it's like okay whoever's running for republican for president i'm gonna vote for him like really i mean no, i guess no, that's how not we saying, got just, Donald Trump but you know and i i'm not saying you're wrong it's just a bummer
1: <laughs> so you know in terms of coalition uh building and, and the Trump administration he was really i mean a lot of people would say that it was a uh, major blow to the administration, the the three cases that just came down the last two weeks from the Supreme Court. And it was a major blow to the Trump administration. But looking at it, you know, again, just politically and electorally, he he couldn't have been given a greater gift for these one issue voters that, you know, forget everything else. I vote on what the person is going to do on abortion or the Second Amendment. You know, there's, there's a lot of voters like that out there. And You know, when you have the Supreme Court striking down laws um, about limiting abortion, then they're going to be more energized than ever to get behind the president. Because, I mean, in in their viewpoint, okay, we need another uh, another conservative Supreme Court justice. And President Trump has announced his litmus test uh, for his judicial appointees that he's only going to nominate someone that would overturn Roe v. Wade, not someone that would apply the law to the the facts and circumstances of a particular case as, as, as they judge appropriate. Um, And so that's going to energize and, and bake in that coalition um, or that part of his coalition. And so that, that could be very helpful to him. Though those three cases were major
0: defeats for his administration. That's a good point. I didn't think about it that way, that you actually, instead of judging him as somewhat of a failure for, Losing the cases, he is actually they're actually going to bolster his the the enthusiasm of his base to ensure that they get that justice. Now, real quick on Wade, since I know you have a lot of con law um, specialties in your law degree, what uh, I've heard from some other you know attorney friends of mine that Roe is just a it's a terrible ruling, and that it's it's shit law that the it should be struck down and then a pro-choice law should just be written um, that is a lot more sound. Um, well, I mean,
1: that's that's very presumptuous. And when you start gambling with the right for a woman to choose to throw this out, and let's just craft something else. First of all, it's not how the Supreme Court works. And second of all, that's just a major, major gamble. And, and there have already been modifications. Every subsequent abortion center ruling from Roe has evolved that law, right? I mean, Planned Parenthood versus Casey—that uh, that's when they went from a different test to the undue burden test, which is now the governing precedent. So in many ways, Roe has been, we'd say, overturned, but such, uh, certainly modified and and has evolved over time as it will continue. But the Supreme Court doesn't work like that—that that you just throw something out and uh, and and put in something new. I mean, that is. Um, it's a it's a legal doctrine called stare decisis, and what that means is, it's the legal principle of determining points in litigation according to a precedent, and that, for example, is the basis for upholding the abortion or the or for striking down the abortion law that just was announced today by the Supreme Court. It, it wasn't on the substantive you know issues of the law; it, it was on that legal doctrine and you know, that a similar case had just been decided uh, four years earlier in Texas that, that they were very similar. And so John Roberts, the chief justice, he dissented from the opinion of the Texas case, but then he was the deciding vote uh, in the case today where he upheld the ruling of the case that he disagreed with because of that legal principle stare decisive. And so um, that's what happened today, you know, but uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's you're you're gambling with a lot to just want to throw something out, and, and with the makeup of this court, with five conservatives and four liberals, you know, for any uh law to move forward, the liberal side has to pick up at least one conservative justice, and uh, the, the makeup of the court right now is not such that you would just you know throw something out and 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 put something new in there. It's just not going to happen.
0: That was a great answer. <laughs> thank you yes um so let's talk swing states Um right. we got off on a little bit of a, a law tangent which was which was helpful for sure um where where's trump most vulnerable in in the swing states that he needs to carry i mean i saw fucking polls from florida that had him down nine
1: Well, let me run through this. I I jotted down some numbers real quick. Um, These, the the polls I'm about to read are either a Fox News poll or the New York Times poll, both of which came out last Thursday. And I'm just going to say the state and the result. North Carolina, Biden up two. Texas, Biden up one. Georgia, Biden up two. Uh, Florida, Biden up nine. All of those were Fox News polls. These are New York Times. Florida, Biden up six. Wisconsin, Biden up 11. Michigan, Biden up 11, Pennsylvania, Biden up 10, North Carolina, Biden up nine, and Arizona, Biden up seven. I mean, that is just, to say he's, you know, the Trump, the president is up against a, a headwind for a re-election is just, if, if you believe those numbers. And again, it's from both Fox News and the New York Times. So if you don't, you just have to say that everybody has it wrong, uh, which I don't really know how you make that argument. Um, I. When you see numbers this substantial, where there's not outliers, where you're cherry picking a number to kind of advance an argument, when you see uniform numbers like this, I think it's hard to deny that the president is very much losing right now. But to answer your question, Josh, if he loses, I mean, God, any combination of one or two of these states, I mean, he's he's screwed. If he loses Texas, Arizona or Florida, it's going to be hard for him to win regardless of what he, of he wins. Then you uh, see, go ahead. Yeah. Texas.
0: Come on. I mean, I know where the polls are. I don't see him losing Texas,
1: but that's not, that's not really the question. I mean, I, I don't disagree with you, but if there are polls and, and I'm sure the internal numbers are, are pretty much the same. I mean, maybe not, but I would imagine. So um, the, the question is, it's not whether or not he's going to lose. Is he going to have to spend tens of millions of dollars in time in texas where he should be up pin, you know instead of florida or ohio or michigan you see what i'm saying there's an opportunity mm-hmm. cost for polling this bad where now he's having to shore up states both financially and with his time which is the most valuable resource any uh, campaign has is, is is the the principal's time and he's going to have to be in georgia in texas in arizona i mean like that's how is he expanding his map and really putting in the resources and the time in these "quote unquote" must-win states of Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, you know, I mean, so he's in trouble.
0: Yeah, the fact that he's buying airtime in Georgia and Texas is right. Is, Arizona, is, I mean, that's Arizona crazy. Is kind of shocking. Uh, I mean,
1: but when you in Arizona right now, they've got uh, of the you know the number of positive tests of all tests uh, performed is around twenty five percent. Talking about COVID, I mean that's and you wonder why he's down for the first for the republican being down for the first time in arizona and forever i mean so it's it, his chickens are coming home to roost and and i really think that um you know one it's very hard especially with this president to predict how uh you know any one thing is going to affect um the perception of him in the minds of the voters but one thing that we have seen that that you cannot dispute is that since the beginning of this pandemic and to present time, the voters have held him accountable, at least in the polls, um, consistently and across the board for his mishandling of this epidemic. I I mean, as there's just, there's no disputing that. Now, as you see these cases continue to climb, you've got Texas hitting the polls on reopening, and this is the most Republican of Republican governors doing this. And, um, You know, the United States now setting record after record of number of daily cases in a higher proportion, um, you know, than they have been. If, If we move to a point where, you know, states are having to shut back down, jobs aren't coming back as quickly as they are. If the public is already holding the president responsible for that, and you're seeing that in terms of his dropping approval rating and poll numbers, that that trend is only going to get baked in as it becomes clearer and clearer that the president has and his administration has mishandled this crisis and and the American people are the ones that are suffering for it. So I, 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 I think you're going to see that trend continue.
0: What, what do you think? Where would we these numbers be, do you think, in the absence of um, the coronavirus?
1: Let's just oh, say Lord.
0: things are normal.
1: Uh, well, I, what's normal in this administration? I mean, I, I don't know, but I think the it's mean, just a hard question. But but I think the difference here is, and it's only become going to become more so that the coronavirus and everything that is attached to that, whether it be you know soaring unemployment or uh, it's just it's go, it's becoming so pervasive, and it, it frankly, already has become so pervasive in the United States. That this is something that touches everyone.
0: All right, so you wanted to get into um, the Defense Authorization Act that Trump is threatening to veto, um, and then as I, you probably know more about this than I do, I mean, of the last I heard, he was he was upset that it included um, a provision which which was to rename the military bases named after confederates
1: right so now we're talking about a bill that funds our military right i mean it's this is it, it it's the biggest deal in terms of military spending which as you know this president has trumpeted as you know uh, barack obama left him with no bullets in in the pen or you know in our wherever well, it's you know a huge what piece of lettuce. when right. i was
0: with department of energy working with the nuclear weapons complex that was with omnibus spending bill, So everything is yeah, in there. Right. And stuff so, gets put in there that's not even military. Well, that's Congress. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. So, But it, it's important to
1: note, this bill has passed the United States Congress for 59 years and been signed into law by the president consecutively. So this president, you know, in the face of everything that's going on across the country is digging his heels in about the, which the Pentagon supports, by the way, renaming these Confederate monuments, bases or, or, or whatever, um, or stripping the names of Confederate generals, things like that. Now, what's also very interesting, um, and this is where I think you could see Trump back down off of this veto threat, is that this bill also includes a pay raise to our soldiers and our armed forces. And so if he vetoes it, he's not only gonna be, you know, with the Confederate stuff, but he's going to be vetoing a pay raise for um our our soldiers and so it's going to be tough for him to explain that and that not hurt himself politically not to mention you couple that on the back of this bounty gate stuff where veterans groups are getting all over him you know for for allowing this to happen not standing up to russia and you know the military families are a big part of as we were talking about earlier the his coalition his base and the last thing he needs right now is a fracturing to any degree of that and and that's what he's walking straight into and it just befuddles me both from a moral standpoint but also just a political standpoint that you would pick a fight over this you know with such extreme consequences but that's this man
0: well yeah i mean the confederacy that that, said this before i think when i was talking to, to schools in my last pod that my arthritis has lasted longer <laughs> than that. the Confederacy. Yeah, that's the truth. And here's another thing. Those bases are all in the South, okay? They, they were named during the Jim Crow era. Now, think about you being a young black soldier. You're, you're deployed to one of these bases. What you're being told is that the worst officer in the Confederacy a treasonous, treasonous, slave-owning, you know, entity is better than you. right? Yeah. Because you, black man with a gun, are being taught by people at this base. So, essentially, once again, Donald Trump doubles down on his racism. This is one of the many ways that systemic racism is present in, in America, and he is willing to, to, to go to this length. And it's just shocking.
1: It is, uh, but, but it's just another kind of step in that same line. What's really shocking is, I mean, to say the Pentagon or, you know, the military brass is slow to embrace, you know, social change in the ranks of our military is probably the understatement of the year, but they're even there on this. I mean, that's, that's what's just befuddling. And so to as skewed as it is, but to say this decision isn't political by this president, who, by the way, I mean, he's from New York City. What what, what does this man know about the Confederacy and our heritage and all that crap? I mean, he doesn't know anything about that. I, I probably couldn't even name a battle, in, in my opinion. I may be wrong, but
0: anyway. Well, yeah, it's super political. And he. I think it's also a silly thing is that so many wars were won with soldiers who trained at these bases, and the last time I checked, you know, I worked with a lot of milita- current and former military guys when I was with the government and people on active deployment. Not a single one of them said that they were fighting to defend the base where they were trained. No, they pledged an oath to defend American citizens right. and uphold the Constitution.
1: Enemies you foreign could, and domestic. Yep.
0: Yeah, you could change the name of where they had basic and got yelled at by a drill sergeant or wherever they learned how to jump out of an airplane and did special ops training sure all that's cool but you're there with your guys you if that was called camp mickey mouse so be it i don't right. care
1: and so much of the concern here is, or then of the pentagon's concern is unit cohesion and you know disrupting the unit those types of things well to me like you just said if there's an african american that trained at this base of a symbol of oppression to me that would go further to um disrupt unit cohesion than it would to just put a different name on it. But anyway, that's where we are. But look, it doesn't end there. Last night, he Trump tweeted he wants to change fair housing rules to protect the suburbs. Now, who do you think he's trying to protect the suburbs from the fair housing laws? You know, I mean, give me a break. And then he called today Black Lives Matter a symbol of hate. I mean, so this man is just 100 percent leaning into this and doubling down on the racism. And just going back to the earlier discussion, again, just forget the morals for a minute, although that should be at the forefront from our our, our leader. But it's not. It's it's just bad politics. I mean, that, it doesn't even make sense there. So I, I, I don't know what he's doing. I think he's becoming more and more desperate and, frankly, unhinged. Um, and I do think that if he keeps this up, you may start seeing these defections that you know we were alluding to earlier from from the Republicans.
0: So continuing our, our current events trend, uh, today there was a press conference that Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas, and Steve Daines of Montana had in response to the, um, the growing sentiment to make D.C. a state. And one of the things, one of the quotes that came out of there by Steve Daines was that, you know, folks need to go talk to the real Americans out in the world and see what they think about this. Now, I don't even know what that means. Well, what? There's an implied meaning to that. I mean, that that's kind of a nice dovetail from our, you know, the conf- the, the military base's named for Confederates. Um, you know, it's it's implying that DC aren't quote unquote real. Like the rest of the real no, it's a, it's choose.
1: a dog whistle for sure, I mean, and it, you got to remember two of the three of those guys you just mentioned, which I think we're gonna get to are both in you know serious uh reelection fights there so i I guess he's playing to his base, but I mean, I, what are they scared of? That's what I don't understand like what's the big deal about having this sect of Americans represented the same way the rest of Americans are I mean it, well, it's because equity. it's
0: right, they don't want equity, they know that when more people vote then they lose because their policies are not written in a a manner that, and haven't been for quite some time. I mean, you know, even since the Bill Clinton era era, the, the higher the turnout, the better the Democrats do period. And Obama, you know, followed up with that saying, if we vote at 65 to 70% turnout, Americans vote, the Democrats win in a walk. Yep. And, they, and all the Republicans have done since then is contract that base and, and contract their policy use, platforms. You just
1: use the exact same word I was going to use. It's,
0: it's the ever
1: contracting Republican Party, um, and you're seeing it under Donald Trump. Um, you know, just he, he's leading the charge. I mean, but what these guys don't seem to understand is Trump is going to be gone, and they, you know, they, it's re-election, re-election, re-election for them, and if they keep. Bringing their base or making their base smaller and smaller it's it's just gonna hurt their ability to legislate, which I mean like you said the Mitch McConnell they haven't done much legislating anyway other than the judges, which is is no small thing but um anyway i i I just don't understand the fight there other than as you say, just a dog whistle to the base, but I I don't understand spending the political capital on something like that.
0: Yeah. I don't, I mean, other than the fact that 40, 46% of the people living in DC are African-Americans. Right. So the, they, they're basically convinced that we cannot serve, you know, that population with any equity or else we lose all of our power. And it's just, it's disgusting. It's absolutely despicable that, you know, and fine, you know, one last thing i have not tim scott is the only one that i've seen now i'm not saying it's it hasn't happened that more republicans haven't come out to condemn the president's use of white power but i haven't seen anybody
1: it certainly hasn't been a rolling list i mean you think look uh, the old joke is the most dangerous place um in Washington is between a congressman and a camera um, and so you know i'm sure the media would pick up on anybody a republican congressman from anywhere in the country condemning president trump but look they're all scared to death they're scared to death if they say anything about the president they're going to get primaried from the rnc which is a it's a trump arm at this point and uh the victim of a tweet storm by the president and his and his followers. I mean, that, that's, that's why, whether, but you know, where is the integrity? Where are the principled, uh, where's the principled leadership from, from the modern Republican party? You don't see it.
0: Zero now. And I'm not saying that the modern democratic party doesn't also have issues with integrity and principles. Now let's, uh, but I, I don't argue with I, you not, on that. At all. Yeah, I'm not going to, I'm not going to both sides of it at all because the egregious violations of trust and uh, and everything else is just is just beyond the pale to me. And and one last thing I do want to bring up: Ocon- McConnell is saying um, that they won't extend the six hundred dollars a week unemployment benefits because that is incentivizing people not to work. Now, if the nation had handled this crisis correctly, or at least with more um, effort and Honest effort to curb the spread. Then I may be under more understanding about this. But what's happened is, is they made the mask political. Um, the republic, many Republican governors. I saw a graphic the other day that showed Democratic governors and Republican governors in their states, and the <laughs> and the the Democratic trend is down, you know, for cases and hospitalizations, and the Republican trend is straight up. And these guys defied CDC guidelines. They reopened early, and the president encouraged it, along with members of his party. So now many of these states are are facing op-ed in the New York Times saying exactly. I mean, and now they're saying that these states, these governors, are now having to reclose their states. So how is it that people are supposed to go back to work when the states are closing again because they opened too early? And McConnell's like, no. well, Josh, you're looking at this like it makes sense. And it's not supposed to
1: make sense. It's only supposed to make sense to the people that are hope or that Mitch McConnell hopes reelect him. I mean, that's, he's speaking to a base. Uh, it's the same as any of this other
0: stuff. I like, know. It's just, it's really upsetting. I think oh, what is. I want to do on, people's this, laws on this on the Kellogg state. report is we need to elucidate, you know, when somebody's speaking to a base and when they're not. And sadly, not even a pandemic that has killed more people than, Vietnam and Korea combined in 6 months as opposed to what 14 years of war of armed combat you know that that can't even dissolve or the the the, the political pandering and and so here we are they they've just stopped dealing with the virus they've stopped dealing with you know, it, except suddenly, you know, even Sean Hannity's saying, wear the mask. McConnell, oh, yeah. McConnell was to McConnell say, wear the man. mask. Three months later. Yeah. This needed to be happening in April. Yeah. You know, well, but all the work we did to shut down and to isolate ourselves and to be super careful and to give up time with our loved ones, it's gone now. We're starting over because yeah. these, uh, I don't I, I was
1: talking to a, uh, um, you know, a highly placed person at a big pharmaceutical company this morning. And and he has some folks that are close or in this Operation Warp Speed, the vaccine, but we were just talking about, you know, the current state of it. And, you know, they're talking about a resurgence or a second wave. And we're just absolutely still in the first wave and, and just failed at controlling it. And so, you know, this stuff of, you know, you should wear a mask, or three months later, it's, I mean, it's, it's just, it's unconscionable. It's criminal. You know, I mean, no science has changed in three months, you know, I mean, but they were all railing against it. And I mean, even Jacksonville, Florida, where I I live in North Carolina, where Trump got in this huge dispute with our governor here about the RNC convention. So he took his ball and went down to Florida where that's, you know, freedom country. We can have our rally, um, well, now, yesterday, Jacksonville's mandating masks, so we'll see where that goes. Um, it, you know, it's just I don't understand. Of all things, like you say, hundred and twenty thousand plus dead, and we're going to argue about masks. I mean, it's just it's the most selfish, just quintessential American. I don't, I just don't understand it. I mean, you're just putting something on. You wear a seatbelt. What's what's the big deal? I mean, if you don't want to wear it, look, stay home. That's the other good instruction from you know, to prevent the spread of it. If you don't want to wear a mask that badly, don't leave.
0: Right. But you don't get to be angry that you can't stay home. And then also angry that you don't get to wear a mask. Yeah. no. Yeah. And then there's the whole Tommy Lahren line, which is, well, which is it? Is it six feet? If six, staying six feet doesn't, away doesn't work. Then why do we have to wear a mask? If the mask works, why we got to stay six feet away? It's like, uh... You know, you, we also wear seatbelts, don't speed, and don't drink and drive. You can do all three at once. Right. You know, it's, it's a, we we've gotten so stupid in America. <laughs> really, seriously, they've pandered to the lowest common denominator, and and then yesterday the the press secretary at the White House. Now, this used to be quite the prestigious position to have,
1: yeah. and
0: she had to convince the reporters in the room. That, yes, the President can read <laughs> and, and, and
1: read as well and he's, that he yeah, does. He's, he's a good reader he's the best. And he does
0: indeed read no what one in the, the world is, going
1: is more, on. what i what I really don't have to to parse that statement a little bit, I think she said no one in the world is more informed on the threats that face America than this president well, if that's the case, how did he not know about this russia bounty thing i mean if 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 his national security council did. But they failed to tell him, how can you have that and then also have he's the most informed? Those two statements don't even sit beside each other.
0: And the Gang of Eight is being briefed today by the heads of the intel agencies, which Trump has now called this whole thing a hoax this morning. He said it's a hoax. Yeah, well, It's a hoax, just like he called the coronavirus a hoax. You know, And, and, and it's like, why, why does the Gang of Eight need to be briefed on a hoax? Why, is, it's not why are three members of NATO, three official members of NATO, told Business Insider that they were briefed so that they could take appropriate measures for their troops? Well, it's not a hoax, Josh. This is just him lying. That's it's, what he does. It's a, but I know, but it's it's just so it's just shocking. I just this is a proud nation, you know. And here we I come, wish the Fourth of July and. I wish I was shocked by this, but at this point, no, I'm not shocked anymore, but yeah,
1: no, it should be shocking. It should shock the conscience of the entire nation. But the problem is the bullying and the lack of empathy that has permeated our politics starting at the the top of, of this administration has just normalized this to the point that we're fighting over masks and not caring that Russia is paying the Taliban to execute our soldiers. I mean, that's where we are. And it comes from one person. I mean, and and to me, just to pivot off of that for a minute, but I think it's germane to what we're talking about. I think that is Joe Biden's strongest prospect of of beating this president in November is just, I think people, myself included, have forgotten what what empathetic leadership looks like, that we're in this together, that we are better than this, we can defeat this. And instead, we're just so normalized And in sync with this bullying that when that empathy reemerges, I think people are going to grab hold of it with both arms. That's my two cents. And I think he's going to win pretty handily.
0: I really hope so. I mean, I don't pray much, but, well, I pray, but maybe not like traditional, (laughs) you know what I mean. God. All right. Let's do Senate scorecard. Um. So we, it is campaign year. We've got twenty three and twelve. It's, you know that's a lot. That's quite a what's that forty five seats that are that are going to be open. Uh, Democrats hold twelve seats. Pretty much one is is in question, um, and that would be Doug Jones in Alabama, and the Politico has that leaning Republican. Um, just for for uh, full disclosure, Doug, Senator Jones won a special election um, in 2018 uh, when the seat was vacated by Jeff Sessions uh, when he became Trump's Attorney General, and or was that 2017? It was 20. He was the yeah, first, but yeah. So he earlier. it was filled filled uh, on an interim basis, and then by the governor, and then the election happened in December of 2018. Jones took over uh, one of the first Democrats to hold that uh, a Senate seat in Alabama for 25 years or so.
1: So I think that one is an easy one. Um, Doug Jones, I, I I think he loses and he loses uh, handily. Um, but you have to give that man credit because he I mean, to be a Democrat, a statewide Democrat on the ballot in red state Alabama um, in a presidential year he has not in any way tried to be something that he's not, you know what I mean? He, he, for the, the first and foremost example that comes to my head was voting to convict the president um, on the articles of impeachment in the Senate, knowing full well that that could be the death knell to any reelection prospects. but he did what he thought was right. And, and I personally, whether you agree with that decision or not, it is certainly refreshing in our current politics to see someone standing up and doing what they believe in. Um, But I think, and and this, just one other point that I'll make, well, I think that's an easy call, and it's uh, relevant to the analysis across the board on these Senate races is the biggest kind of driving factor in these toss-up states is that it's a presidential year. So you take a state like Kansas or Alabama, where it's a pretty close Senate race, but if the president, a Republican president, is going to win that state by twenty points, it's going to be very difficult for a statewide Democrat second on the ballot to be able to overcome those sorts of, uh, uh, you know, just headwinds. I mean, there's just way too much momentum. And what you're asking people, what you're asking the majority of people to do is split their ticket from the first and second people by party. And that's just, it's very, very, very difficult.
0: Yeah. And, I like the guy. I like his politics. I, I like I like his track record on civil rights. I like his moderate, my, how moderate he is as a Democrat, and that, that he can be a moderating voice in the party and hopefully work towards bipartisan uh, legislation. I I'm I'm going to go out on a limb. I'm going to say that he beats Tommy Tuberville. Okay. So, you're going Jones stack goes, I mean, you're going Tuberville. I'm going Jones and I, and you, you, everything you said is spot on, but I'm emphatically uh, I, going. Yes. Emphatic. He's going. You're saying Jones is going to I I mean, lose see. in a, in a, in a landslide,
1: but go to hell. Auburn uh, roll tide. That's that.
0: <laughs> roll tide. Yeah. Indeed. I'm, I'm there with you on okay. that. All right. So that moves us over to the, to the Republican side. Um, they're, they're holding 23 of these seats. Uh, If you look at this, there's, I'd say, five toss-up states. There's four that are leaning Republican, and likely Republican would be um, another four. And so let's do the toss-ups. Let's do Arizona um, McSally, the incumbent, against Mark Kelly.
1: She's toast. Mark Kelly wins
0: that by eight points. So I'm with you on that. Which is Uh, I
1: mean, that's pretty extraordinary. I mean, he is an astronaut, Gabby Giffords and all that well known in the state. But Arizona is a red, red state. I mean, and so this actually cuts completely against the grain of the point I just made about, you know, presidential. um, (laughs) But the difference is you look at the statewide polling in the presidential election in Arizona and there are polls that have Biden up where in Alabama or Kansas. Trump's still up twenty thirty points,
0: you know. So there there is a difference there. But yeah, Biden's up seven in Arizona on a poll. I, I don't believe Biden that saw. for
1: a minute. But um, I think he's up. I don't know about
0: seven. I'm looking at it.
1: Well, I don't doubt there's a poll out there. I'm just saying I don't know that I I believe that that he's up that much.
0: Personally. Okay, so we agree on that. Uh, Corey Gardner and uh, is going against the former governor of Colorado John Hickenlooper, who had a tough battle in. His primary that he made even tougher was some ethics violations. I'm saying, I'm saying, Hickenlooper wins because Cory Gardner is a wet rag who is scared to take a position, much much like Tom Tillis.
1: Completely agree with that. Um, I hate that Romanoff did not beat Hickenlooper. I mean, you don't have to look much further than Hickenlooper's own statement where he said, "I would be a terrible United States senator." Um, I mean, he he yeah. won he won in spite of himself, not because of himself. I think Romanoff would have much better represent the state of Colorado. However, uh, Hickenlooper is the nominee. The DSCC wins again. And, um, I I think that one flips blue.
0: Okay. Uh, Susan Collins against Sarah Gideon in Maine.
1: So Collins is getting pounded for this Kavanaugh, uh, support, you know, that she had. And she, it, polling does indicate that she is losing support of moderate Democrats and Democratic-leaning independents. I would, right now, I mean, if I had, I don't know, I, don't, I, I I rate that one just a complete toss-up, and it would not surprise me if it goes either way. I think that one will very, very much be determined by where the top of the ticket ends up in November. I think if, if Trump wins, Collins will definitely win. If he's, if it's very close, she still may pull it out. If Biden wins by four or five points, Susan Collins is gone.
0: Okay, I'm picking Sarah Gideon because I'm not afraid to take stance, draw lines in, <laughs> unlike some other political operatives I know.
1: Yeah, well, you know. And you, look, if you don't ever pick, you can't be wrong.
0: That's true. That's true. Uh okay, Steve Danes in Montana against uh I think Steve Bullock. Steve
1: Bullock Yeah, Steve Bullock, former governor. Um I picked Do Bullock I like here. A lot? Yeah, I like him a lot too. I, this is a tough one um for for both of the, the Battle of the Steves, but I personally think Steve Bullock will pull us out. He's very popular in Montana um in spite of being a Democrat in Montana. And uh I, yeah, he was successfully elected governor there, remains popular. He has the ability to raise money. People know him in the state Um, with the fatigue, the Trump fatigue that you're seeing. I think Bullock pulls it out. And that would be a huge uh, win
0: for the Democrats. I'm with you. I'm with you. Um, So we're both we're bullish on Bullock. Uh, Let's do North Carolina, the land of the longleaf pine, where you and I have done some campaigning. Yeah, We've got Cal Cunningham against Tom Tillis.
1: This one's tough to me. Um, I think I think this one, you know, again will very much come down to the top of the ticket. North Carolina is very much a swing state. It was won by Barack Obama in his first term, barely, or his first election, barely lost it in his second one, and then Trump won it by a little bit more um, in twenty sixteen. Biden, by any. Um, Analysis of the polling is up handily here, at least outside of the margin of error. The thing that troubles me um is Cunningham should be up more uh if if he was in line with the you know the the larger polling trends that we're seeing out of out of North carolina. You got cooper dwarf governor cooper um that's our democratic governor here, just destroying um Dan Forrest here who's our current lieutenant governor and is just an absolute nut he uh Sued Governor Cooper to open the bars yesterday, or no, requiring face masks. He sued the governor, but meanwhile, on his campaign site, he's selling Dan Forrest face masks. To, you know, just it, that's a quick aside. But I think that Cunningham should be up more. I personally think he's a, he's a weak candidate. I think that the DSCC could have done a lot better um, in in picking a, a more seasoned candidate. He hadn't held elective office in twenty three years, I think. And uh, but you know, he is raising a lot of money. Democrats like him. Obviously, he won the primary, Um, and he's a he's a veteran. So, you know those things those things could do it. But I personally think this could be an easy pickup for the Democrats. Um, But he's he's you you see some polls where Tillis is winning, Um, and so it's it's odd that he hasn't pulled farther away like Joe Biden has.
0: But if I had to pick,
1: if I had to pick, I would say Cunningham pulls it out because Joe Biden's going to
0: win North Carolina. We're both on that one. I I agree that. He's a weak candidate. There's not been any enthusiasm coming out of well, it's because his he, campaign. It's just he's yeah. just so vanilla.
1: He, well, it's, you know, the, the biggest thing is he doesn't lead. He doesn't take positions. He, um, I mean, I, I was speaking to a person the other day, and I, I, I'm not going to name any names here, but the conversation was he was talking to Mister Cunningham, and he said, "Look, why are you, you know, out here saying A, B, and C?" And the answer, this was a donor phone call. The answer was. Uh, because if the DSCC said, you know, this is something that we should do. I mean, so he's sitting there answering why he has positions on a certain issue by explaining to the donor that it's good politically. I mean, like, what does the man stand for, you know? And and, and frankly, the answer is uh, nothing. I, I think it was six months before he even had a, a stance on any issue on his website. So I find that abhorrent. I think that is what is wrong with politics today. But it also is, uh, you know, a blank canvas that, when it comes down to crunch time, that can go in any direction on any issue that may become relevant. You know, that, that's good politics, I guess, but to me, it's it's what everybody hates about politics.
0: No, I'm with you on that, man. I think that he's got it. You know, to close, Tillis is such a weak candidate, such a Trump sycophant, such a, you know, he's just awful. He he's weak. He's he's
1: he hasn't done he's anything. He's
0: a suck-up bootlicker who – he's just terrible.
1: Well, he's had um, six years as a United States senator. Nobody – I mean, tell me one thing Tom Tillis has done for the state of North Carolina. I mean, no one can tell you anything because he hasn't done anything. That's why he's airing <laughs> spots in this state right now that are biographical spots. Hey, I was born here. That's Because nobody knows who you are. You know, but in, right. After you should have first, to do that no, after six years. You should be telling your accomplishments, not defining yourself to voters. But, again, that's, that's in the same vein – is what Cunningham is trying to do. Both of them could learn a huge yeah. lesson from Doug Jones.
0: Exactly. I'm with you on that. All right, so we agree Tillis is in trouble. Let's go to the a couple seats that are that are being classified by Politico as leaning Republican. But I don't know, man. I think I think John Ossoff upsets David Perdue in Georgia. And I think uh I think Joni Ernst loses in Iowa. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Okay, Georgia. Now, there's two seats in Georgia that are worth discussing, but just on the first one that you mentioned, um, I think – I go the other way. I think that stays Republican. David Perdue wins. And um, Ernst in Iowa, I think that depends, again, with the top of the ticket. But in the last month, the polls have tightened, 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 where she was – I mean, Ernst did not look like she was in trouble three months ago, but she's getting hammered here, and – and it's a little odd because you're not seeing that trend in these Senate races to the degree that you're seeing it in Iowa. Um, but if that trend continues, she's gone. And, I mean, I think that the last poll I saw up there had her down three or four. But I think Iowa's very red state. So, right now, I, I, I truly would classify that one as a toss-up right now.
0: So, you're not going to make a decision, huh? Damn. Typical. Spoken like a typical politician. There you go. All right. All right. Well... So, are you thinking Jamie Harrison has a chance in South Carolina against
1: uh, Lindsey uh, No, I don't. I think he, he loses by four or five. That's, again, this goes back to the same thing with Alabama and Kansas. Yeah, I mean, you're just talking about a a rabidly red state of South Carolina, um, and Jamie Harrison is – and for a Democrat to win in South Carolina, you've got to be able to carry the base and build a business coalition of moderate Republicans, independents and moderate Democrats. And that's very, very difficult because the interests of those demographics, those different sects in a state like South Carolina, don't reconcile very easily. And um, while he's doing well, um, he's he's not building that coalition, I don't think, large enough to defeat Lindsey Graham, who also, listen, you got to remember, too, Lindsey Graham is chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. That means he is in charge of confirming Supreme Court nominees. What is the most important issue to white evangelical voters in the South? Abortion. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so you're saying, look, you know, this is Lindsey Graham. You've got me. I'm not letting anybody on that court. And you see what I'm saying? I mean, Mm -hmm. that's that's a strong argument for reelection to 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 that base. All right. But so, I, I would, it would tickle me to death if he lost. I wish you could lose twice.
0: Yeah, he sucks. He's terrible. All right, man. Well, listen, that's going to wrap today's pod. I really appreciate you taking the time. I um, want to get you back next week so we can go over um, some of these more, uh, you know, what we what I call social justice special interest movements, which is, uh, you know, we got a big uh, the gay rights approval on the, on the Supreme court and we've got black lives matter happening um, and sort of how politicians are going to make hay with that stuff or be held accountable. But yeah, so
1: no, absolutely. And and the the three decisions that came out of the Supreme court in the last two weeks, I mean, that, that conversation is is worth having because I mean if nothing else is just extraordinary, the analysis of uh, the three conservative appointees that are crossing over and the, I mean, it's just, it, there's a lot going on there, not to mention the impact of, of, you know, like you say, the LGBT decision is probably one, the, if not the largest for that, um, you know, group in, in the history of the court. So there's a lot to talk about there as well.
0: Yeah, man. Well, I can't wait. Thanks again for, for setting aside the time in your busy day and uh, we'll, we'll get back at it next week.
1: Yes, sir. Have a good one.
0: You too, buddy. Bye-bye. <laughs>